fascinating people, insightful stories, an hour of enlightenment. This is Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The world was in ruin at the end of World War II, from the Blitz in London to the atomic bomb blasts in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. A small group of army soldiers witnessed it all. They also photographed Germany's last push, the Battle of the Bulge, and they rode into Germany and saw unimagined destruction. They documented the Burma Road, which opened mainland China to supplies and saw war atrocities as far away as the Philippines. The soldier photographers are acclaimed for their war photographs, but their work has never really been compiled before in a book. Thank you so much, Richard Cahan, for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. Thank you, Charlie, very much. Richard, with his co-author Mark Jacobs, have written the new book, Aftershock, The Human Toll of War, Haunting World War II Images by America's Soldier Photographers. Richard is a journalist who writes about photography, art, and history. He worked for the Chicago Sun-Times from 1983 to 1999, primarily serving as the paper's picture editor. He left to found and direct City 2000 a project that documented Chicago in the year 2000. Since then, he has authored and co-authored more than a dozen books, including Un-American, about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II and River of Blood. That's a book based on the interviews of formerly enslaved Americans. He also works as a curator, creating photo exhibitions at Chicago museums. Check out the website for the book publisher for Aftershock. That's City Files, plural, press.com. Well, Rich, tell us about how you and Mark came together and decided to work on this book. I was working with Mark Jacob and another man, uh, Michael Williams, and we tell history through photography. We're actually called by other people photo historians, and that's a term that uh, I'd never heard before uh, people started calling us. We try to find large collections of photographs, either from individuals or from institutions, and tell stories with the photographs leading the history and the words following instead of the photographs illustrating the words. And um, we were always interested in World War II. We're, we're of the generation that came just after World War II. Uh, we see how significant the war was to, to modern day America and the world, obviously. And um, we started really concentrating on the effect of war. We started looking at photographs from 1945, not really showing the war as much as the, the toll of war, uh, the, the effect of war, because I think that, that we, we as Americans have forgotten how serious, how devastating war can be. So many of us um, look at war from afar. Obviously the veterans and their, the loved ones that fight in Afghanistan and the Middle East don't have this feeling, but if, but if you're not connected to war, it's easy to sit back and, and, and watch it uh, as if it's not as, that it's almost benign. And so we wanted to look at this most important year in human history. Well, uh, you know, 1940, we looked at 1945 and that's a year that culminated a war that up to 60 million people died in. Well, Aftershock focuses uh, on the photographs taken only in 1945, and that was the year, the last year of World War II. These were a group of several hundred men in the U.S. Army Signal Corps. So talk about why you chose that specific year. What was unique about it? Well, that was the year that all of the forces that had been gathering really from the end of World War I, all, it, it, it culminated in, in, in the end of war. Um, there were... Um, Concentration camps were released. Uh, the nuclear bombs were dropped on Japan. 
there was massive bombing of Germany. And um, we wanted to look at, you know, they say that every generation forgets the trauma of war. And we, in a sense, wanted to leave this generation with uh, no excuses, in effect. Uh, we think that the photographs that these men produced is really a gift to future generations. I, I'm not sure if they, they thought about it when they were taking pictures. I'm sure they were mostly thinking about keeping themselves safe. But they left a couple hundred thousand photographs that are in the archives of the national are the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. And we carefully looked through those photographs, chose a couple of hundred of them, and then used those photographs as a uh, taking off point to explain what was happening in 1945. Rich, few of these photographers were professionals. I mean, how did they become skilled enough to capture these kind of striking images? I mean, they were often under extremely dangerous circumstances. <clears throat> Right. Besides boot camp, they spent a couple of months, sometimes six weeks, and sometimes there were several six-week courses, so 12 weeks and 18 weeks, learning photography, and really more importantly, learning how to tell a story with, with a camera. And um, they, were, they learned how to take pictures in combat situations. Uh, you know, these were very courageous people. They went to war instead of, you know, they went to war carrying a camera instead of a gun. And that, that's one of the many things that struck us uh, about these photographs. Well, four-time Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer Carol Guzzi, who contributed the foreword to your book, writes that photojournalists who cover the human face of war suffer from trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. When we leave the war zone, we, too, can be the walking wounded. What did your research reveal, Rich? You know, I didn't find a lot of evidence of it. Um, the soldiers who took these pictures are mostly dead. There were very few that were alive. This happened 75 years ago. They were usually between 20 and 25, so they would all be 95 or 100 years old. But I did talk to their families, and I think most of their families said their their uh, fathers were pretty well adjusted. Uh, but one of the reasons I, I thought a lot about it is one of the reasons they were adjusted is that they were able to tell their story through photographs, and they were able to leave something behind. I think they were very proud of their work. I think they took their work very seriously. But what they went through was incredibly traumatic. They were, you know, they were almost always on the front lines. Um, they were trying, you know, there wasn't a lot of great pictures, you know, miles behind the lines, and they saw a lot of action. Talk about the fact that many of the photographers featured in your book had hoped that by showing the reality of war, they might actually help bring about an end to conflict. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I looked at the history of war photography, and even as far back as the Civil War, where there were photographs of casualties in Antietam, and they were th these photographs were shown in New York galleries. And I looked through New York Times accounts of this gallery show, and they said all of a sudden, you know, you can see war. They brought war into the gallery so that we c they can confront viewers. And I think there's always been this sense that it was important to take photographs of war. And, and that was certainly important to these men who really um, wrote a lot about their experiences. Even though I, I didn't interview any that were still alive, many left memoirs, many of them left short books, uh, many of them left interviews of what they saw. And I think they see their work as very profound. Well, the photographers uh, enjoyed an unusual level of freedom for soldiers. How much autonomy did they really have? Yeah, they had very they had special passes that were issued by Dwight Eisenhower, and they could go anywhere. So um, many were attached to units and battalions, but many of them kind of freelanced because they were always looking for good pictures, and they oftentimes conversed with generals before battle, so they knew 
where the battle was going to be. Um, and, and, and they were incredibly brave. Uh, unlike, you know, chaplains who had uh, signs or, or, or their uniforms denoted that they were chaplains and they, they shouldn't be shot at, not that it was an easy situation. But these photographers were fair game in the middle of battle. And again, they were just using cameras. They were provided oftentimes handguns. But as they wrote, they couldn't really take pictures and shoot at the same time. And they almost always uh, opted for the camera. Well, you talked with the families of all of the photographers to learn what happened to them. While most members of the Signal Corps lived lives of relative obscurity after the war, there were some exceptions. So talk about those, Rich. Yeah, there's a, there's a very famous photographer by the name of uh, Yale, Yale Joel, who was, whose real name was Yale Lapidus, and he ended up being a Life magazine photographer. Um, perhaps the most famous of these photographers was a movie camera photographer. So he was dispatched with a still photographer, and that's uh, Russell Russ Meyer, who became the famous, uh, 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 I won't say pornography, uh, girly, <laughs> uh, making girly movies. And this experience that Russ Meyer had uh, was really important to him. He organized uh, reunions for 20 or 30 years, and people who knew him talked about how he learned movie photography there, and he really cared about what he saw. I, I don't know exactly how it translated into his films, but um, it, it, you know, it, he was probably the most famous of all. In 1984, Robert Steubenrauch returned to the Alsace countryside in northeastern France, where he had stayed with the 163rd Combat Assignment Team during the winter of 44 and 1945, when Nazi troops were within a rifle shot away. Well, why did he return, Rich? What, who was he looking for? You know, these were times that were very much etched on these photographers' lives. Um, he had been he had been cared for. He had been taken care of by a a French family, and uh, there was a woman uh, who who was especially kind to him and his uh, co-photographers. And just on a whim, he happened to work for Goodyear, and he was driving in France, um, you know, almost 50 years after the war. So he asked people uh, where this woman lived. She still lived in town, and um, he wrote that he rang her doorbell in her her apartment, and um, a French woman said, who is there in French? And he said, Robert from the war. And she said, I knew you'd always return. So it, it kind of talks about how important these moments, these days, these years were on both the photographers and the people who lived through war. Well, only a few photographers are still around to reflect on 1944, yet you did meet Ira Lewis. What did, yes. What did he tell you about what it was like to be in Manila in 1945? Well, he's about 98 years old, so... You know, it, it, it was difficult, but he has strong memories of um, the brutality of war in the Philippines. Um, I think that sometimes we forget that the war actually, you know, encompassed, there were 30 nations that were part of the hostilities, and the Philippines was a major um, battleground, uh, as was China and India and Burma. And he talked about uh, just the how he, how he remembers that when um, the towns that he photographed were liberated that the photographers and the troops were treated like heroes. So it's obviously something that one doesn't forget for a long time. Well, as you said, the families of the other photographers were extremely helpful to you. So tell us a a few of the stories. Yeah, I think they were, they're all very, they're proud of their parents. And in the same way, they don't exactly know what their parents did because 
their parents didn't really talk about their their fathers did not really talk about their experiences generally. Um, and and I think that's one of, one of the daughters of uh, one of the photographers said that she finds that World War II veterans or all war veterans either spend their lives talking about the war or never talk about the war. And there wasn't a, a person that that I talked to whose whose father didn't spend a lot of time talking about the war. Um, they usually, uh, I think most of them felt, most of the, 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 the men who fought, uh, few of them became photographers after the war because I think they felt like they had seen it all and they had photographed it all. So after, you know, photographing the destruction of Dresden, I, I don't think it would be easy to come back and, you know, photograph the, 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 the YMCA at, in their hometown. So most of them gave up photography, but I saw that many of them took careers that were somewhat related to photography. There were printers, there were engravers, uh, there were newspaper reporters. Um, so they obviously, all th these men generally really were, um, to, be, to be an effective photographer, you have to be quite a go-getter, quite good in human skills, so you can kind of talk your way into situations, whether you're talking your way into situations with a general or, or a civilian. And um, I, I think most of them led interesting lives, but I think that they they mostly thought that the war was the, the, the pinnacle of, of, of their lives. The medical officer who described what happened to the death march women in Volare, Czechoslovakia, is your dad, Aaron. Yeah. He was, yeah, there, he, was there. he was photographed by the Signal Corps as he gave aid to one of the survivors. Rich, how much had you known of your dad's wartime experience, and, and how did you track down that photo, given that his name had been misspelled? Yeah, my dad was involved in a very interesting, um, there was a death march of uh, Jewish women, mostly Jewish women, uh, through Germany into Czechoslovakia, and the death march had lasted for several months, and it started with about 1,200 women. And uh, by May of 1945, they were down to about 125 women, mostly all uh, starving in a barn in Czechoslovakia. And um, my father was the first doctor to arrive at the scene. And um, I did know a little bit about the situation because several of the young women had written my mother, who was a young bride at the time, mm. letters talking about how kind and smart my father was. So I was aware of it. I, I think we discussed it once. And the women actually got together in the 1990s uh, after my father's death to reunite in, in this town, Volari, Czechoslovakia. And um, I knew he was involved in it. So I, I started looking for photographs of Volari and the Volari March. That's what it's called. Um, and, and I happened to come across a picture of my father at the bedside of a, of, of a young woman. His name had been misspelled, so I would have never found it had it not been the fact that I was actually let, looking at, you know, pictures one at a time and turning them over and checking the captions. It's just amazing to be able to include your own family member in a project like this that really feels like it's a really large, uh, encompassing thing that is, I mean, it was a world war. I mean, how does it personally feel to be able to share your dad's story like that? Oh, it, it does make me feel good. I had a lot of thought of whether I wanted to include it or not. Um, but the interesting thing is when I talk about the book's just coming out now. And when I talk about the book, most everybody has a real story about their family's involvement in World War Two. And uh, it really brings up a lot of memories, whether they're the first generation after the war or even second or third. And it's about their grandfathers or great grandfathers. You know, this was this was an all encompassing war. And that's one of the things that surprised me. Um, 
the fact that 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 the fighting was going on through most or much of the world um, is just remarkable to me because I think of how traumatic this is going to sound funny, but how how traumatic limited or small wars are today. And I just can't imagine that that this could have happened. Rich, tell us a little bit of the history of the role of photography in war. I mean, why did photography enable artists and journalists to create a less heroic image of war than had the previous methods of, of documenting and, you know, say, painting and sketching? Right. Well, I think, you know, photography is more reality-based and uh, art is more based on uh, a little bit of the imagination. And uh, war isn't heroic. That's that's the one thing that, that I, I've learned from reading the accounts of these photographers, not only did they leave their photographs behind, but they left, you know, day-to-day records behind. And they're always complaining about the fact that um, the action is too far away from them, that the action, that there's fog, that there's nighttime. You know, soldiers, when we look at movies, it seems like soldiers are always going over the hill on a really sunlit, beautiful day. But the reality is soldiers don't move much except at night and on very foggy difficult days to see them they don't they you know and the action is is microscopic it's an inch there a foot there a you know a, a move of a couple of yards a day um so it's very different than than what we imagine in movies or in art and um you know these photos are 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 real so so they reflect that and there's certainly a stark contrast to the propaganda photographs that are so well known out of Nazi Germany. Germany, you know, Lenny Liefen, Liefen, I can't even say the last name. Right, right. No, no. There's no question about it. This book, um, one, you know, it, this book I think is filled with humanity. Other people might look at this book as as it looks pretty gruesome. It's it's the unvarnished truth. We we really did not try to sensationalize these photographs. But we also didn't want to hide them. We figured this is a chance to write a book that really teaches people, not that we're teaching people, but the photographers are teaching with their photographs, really teaching people the reality of war, uh, the bodies, the starvation. There's a photograph of uh, civilians in Germany cutting uh, apart uh, uh, the carcass of a horse so they could be fed. Um, this is this is sad stuff. But I think that ultimately um, – the book is filled with humanity as much as um, horror. <laughs> I hope so. Rich, although the photographs are all declassified now, some of the images include notations like confidential or restricted. Do you know why the Army and Department of Defense classified them that way in the first place? Is Sure. Well, well, in 1945 and during World War II and, and most wars afterwards, um, the, mili- the the government's job was to show uh, America as victorious and moral and clean. And so there was a tremendous amount of deciding what the government would release at the time. Uh, but after a few years after the war, all these were released. Um, and most of the most of these pictures, there's so many books written about World War II, but most of them have to do with the, the victorious battles, you know, D-Day and France and, uh, you know, victories. And somehow as the war was winding by, these photographs have, have managed not to get into a lot of books. Well, Rich Cahan is our guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The new book with his co-author Mark Jacob is Aftershock, The Human Toll of War, Haunting World War II Images by America's Soldier Photographers. Check out the website for the book publisher, City Files. Press.com. Thanks so much for being here today, Rich. Thank you very much, Charlie.